to the premiere episode of Autopsy Turvy, a true crime podcast. We will start with crimes in Hawaii because that is where we live and we have access to the local archives here. But we will be covering any case that needs the attention or any cases that have particularly interesting forensic science developments. Aloha, I'm Storm Stoker and I'm from Hilo, Hawaii. I went to England for college and then Boston for work before moving back home to Hawaii. I'm a librarian at the law school and I'm a certified archivist, so I know research and I am also a novice genealogist and I am absolutely obsessed with the new developments in genetic genealogy as a crime solving tool. I'm also obsessed with true crime. I mean, literally ask me anything about it, I know everything. And I also have a bachelor's in biological anthropology. I'm hoping this podcast will be a deep dive into true crime for our listeners. I'm doing this podcast with my beneficiary or my partner. Ew, I hate that word. That is why I call her my beneficiary, Catherine Troyan. Thank you, and you are my number one favorite emergency contact. <laughs> a bit about me, I have a BA in sociology and a master's in health communication. I'm very into zombies, and as a kid, my dad called me Blood and Guts Catherine because mm-hmm. I was so obsessed with scary movies. I've been with Storm for 14 years, though, so make no mistake, I have seen every true crime documentary out there. I'm from Pittsburgh, but moved back to Boston for college, where I met Storm and then came to Honolulu, Hawaii with her in 2011. Hilo, Hawaii is a nice, sleepy little town where nothing bad ever happens. People know their neighbors, and folks don't lock their doors. Just kidding. Hilo, Hawaii is a place where a bit of crime happens and even a few murders now and then. People lock their doors, and you may know some of your neighbors, but not all of them. Hilo is not shocked when bad things happen, nor is it a place capable of losing an innocence it never had. We started the podcast this way as a message. If anyone is listening in the true crime world, can you please, please stop starting every program like this? It is a totally lame cliche at this point. Yes, please stop. I want to say a few things about my hometown, Hilo, Hawaii, because a typical American town, it is not. Hilo is located on the largest island of the eight islands in the Hawaiian archipelago. It is a tropical Polynesian island. We currently live on Oahu, though, the most populated island, the one with Honolulu and Waikiki on it. Anyway, Hilo is the rainiest city in America. Yes, even rainier than Seattle, but at least it's warm. Hawaii in general is one of the most diverse states, having the highest interracial marriage rate in the United States. Its demographics include the Kanaka Mali, or indigenous Hawaiians, people from all over Polynesia, and a mixture of people from all over Asia, especially Japan, China, and the Philippines, people from Portugal, and Caucasians, mostly from the mainland, often referred to as Haulis. This diverse diaspora resulted from the sugar and pineapple plantations that were in need of workers, and the occupation and later legal takeover of the Hawaiian Islands by the United States government. That is pretty much the most slapdash post-contact history of Hawaii we have ever given. We are just trying to give you a sketchy sense of place, and Hilo, in general, is a very nice place to live. It's warm all year round. We have the most beautiful beaches in the world. The people who live here strive to treat each other with aloha, which is sort of like treating each other like family, only family that you actually like. People often call each other bra, cuz, auntie, and uncle, so it's a nice place. Is it an innocent Shangri-La where bad things never happen? No. Is it paradise? No. You have to work way too hard, usually two jobs just to survive at the poverty line. So those that think they can move here and lounge around on the beach will be in for a rude awakening. Anyway, 
Today we're going to talk about the Dana Ireland case. I chose this for our first case because there are a lot of recent developments and I remember it vividly because my mother thought I looked a lot like Dana Ireland, which I didn't, and tried in vain to restrict my movements for a while. This murder actually took place in the Pune district. This area is outside of the main town of Hilo and is famous for having a lot of leftover stoners and hippies from the 1960s known affectionately as Punitics. It is a very rural area in the jungle where roads are rarely labeled and people give directions that sound like turn left at the abandoned mattress. This will prove to be disastrous for the Dana Ireland case because it was difficult for first responders to find her and quickly render her aid. Dana Ireland was a 23-year-old blonde athletic visitor to the Big Island. She was visiting her big sister Sandy, who was around 12 years older than her. Sandy had earned a degree in biology at UH Hilo, where Storm got her anthropology degree, and later married Jim Ingham. Louise and John Ireland are Dana's parents. John by this time was a retired army captain and manager of a computer center for the army at the Pentagon. Dana and her parents would take frequent trips to the Big Island to visit Sandy. In 1980, when Dana was 11, she wrote in her diary that she hoped to live in Hawaii with Sandy someday. It all started when Anna Shirell called police saying there was a bike accident. There was blood and a two-foot-long, large, bloody hank of blonde hair at the scene, along with the crushed bicycle and one shoe, but no rider. Sergeant Gabrielle Milani arrived to investigate. This is about five miles up the road from where Dana would eventually be found. Later, when they got the call about the rape victim in Wawa, he connected the two incidents and called Officer Harold Pinot to investigate the Wawa scene. Dana was found on Christmas Eve 1991 pleading for help in the Wawa district of Pune by a woman who heard her cries and the roar of a truck engine from her house. This newish subdivision had limited infrastructure, generally. Some have no electricity, phone service, and many depend on their own catchment water tanks for bathing and water. At first, the neighbor, Ida Smith, thought perhaps someone had just gotten injured, as the location is near a popular lava rock where people like to fish. She headed outside at around 4.45 p.m. and heard someone calling, help me. She thought it could be a little girl. Ida asked the person to keep calling so she could find the girl. She found Dana about 100 yards from her house in the very dense jungle underbrush. Ida was completely stunned by Dana's condition. Dana lay on her back, her long blonde hair completely soaked in blood. She was partially covered by branches and leaves. Her clothes were in disarray. Her tank top was around her neck. One shoe was missing and her jean shorts were pushed down around her ankles. She was covered in scratches, bruises, and road rash with a huge U-shaped cut in her head, exposing her skull and a deep gash on her arm. Her left breast had a large bite around the nipple and blood was gushing from between her legs. Ida tried to find out who had hurt Dana, but she was understandably confused and incoherent. Dana asked for help to stand up and for help removing her shorts, but she was much too injured to be moved. Dana started screaming in agony, so Ida sat next to Dana and prayed with her, which seemed to calm her. Ida quickly ran home for a blanket, but she had no phone, medical supplies, or first aid experience. After covering Dana in the blanket, she got her car and drove onto the road, and by road here I mean a cinder makeshift road, and she pointed her lights from the vehicle in Dana's direction. 
Finally, a second neighbor, Hazel Allen, now Hazel Franklin, arrived and Ida was able to tell her about Dana's desperate situation. Hawaii didn't have a 911 service yet, but Hazel sped home and called the emergency services. The time was 5.47 p.m. Officials said she should have called the fire department rather than the police, but you should be able to call any department. It is their job to get the information to the right people. To this day, a lot of places in the Pune district does not have labeled streets or even street names. Despite this, locals know how to navigate around these neighborhoods using landmarks that certainly the police should have been familiar with. Hazel gave pretty much the most detailed and exact directions I could imagine, and yet the first responders still couldn't find Dana for a very long time. This is so frustrating. Anyway, here are the very specific details that Hazel gave. Follow Kahakai from Pahoa, then take Government Beach Road. Ida's van is parked on the side of the road with its lights on, and it is less than two miles down the Government Beach Road. This is before the Wawa subdivision turnoff, which isn't labeled, but is less than two miles. I mean, this is pretty clear to me in my humble opinion. Though I once spent a few hours down in that area searching for a friend's house, my friend was having a party, which I really, really wanted to go to, but finally I gave up because it was just too hard to find. Even if the streets had signs, I'm not sure it would have helped because there was no street lamps down that way, so it was pitch black, and little unpaved roads kind of shoot off from every direction as you're driving. It's pretty hard to navigate. Because we have um, the observatory on the mountain on the Big Island, which is one of the major centers for astronomy in the world, street lamps on this side of the island are heavily regulated and filtered, so light pollution does not interfere with the stargazing. In Pune, they just don't have those street lamps running down every little road, obviously. It makes for one-of-a-kind stargazing experience if you go there, but if you're trying to find someone's house at night, well, it's damn near impossible. As I'm talking through this, though, I'm getting so anxious. They were just so close to getting her help, and she was still alive at this point. You just wish they could hurry up and find her. It was just They were just so close, and it just didn't work. If they'd gotten there a little bit earlier, who knows? They could have saved her, maybe. Sorry, guys. Kath had to go, so I'm going to finish this story for you. Anyway, while, while Hazel rushed to call the authorities, another car with three men and a woman came by, and Ida flagged them down. Ida understandably didn't know if she could trust the men, so she asked the woman to come alone with her to check on Dana. When that woman returned to the car crying, two of the men ran to see if they could help. The woman and one of the men took off in the car to see if they could get help and possibly find a local nurse they knew. The men were so kind that Ida was no longer afraid of them. She got another blanket and returned to Dana. The Good Samaritans did find Jerry, the nurse, and she made her way to the scene and began treating Dana for shock and tried to staunch the bleeding. Dana was incoherent, but mumbled something about Mike Ingham, her brother-in-law, and said that she had had a fight with her boyfriend at the beach and about needing keys to drive herself home. Multiple places were called for help. The Pahoa Ambulance, which is a town about nine miles away, was busy taking another patient to Hilo, and so the Keao Ambulance was called. They were about 16 miles away. With all these calls to get help, they got slightly different directions as to where on the government beach road Dana was located. Also, the distance and small number of ambulances speak to how unpopulated the area is. 
All the slightly differing directions given led the ambulance service to park about two miles away from Dana. Some people came and told the ambulance where she was, and they didn't think that their truck would make it down that road. They asked if the police could bring her out and meet them, but they told them she was too injured. Officer P now assured them that either the fire engines or the ambulance could make it down that road, but they were not sure, so ordered the van to come instead. But the van was in Hilo, so after 25 minutes of trying to decide what to do, the ambulance went in, finally, to get Dana. The time was now 6.50 p.m. Two hours from the time Ida had discovered Dana. Geez, two hours. Okay, I'm gonna try not to judge. I'll provide a little more context in terms of place. For those of you who don't know, the Big Island has an active volcano on its center called Kilauea. It doesn't have explosive eruptions like those that you see with pyroclastic flows leveling villages, so it really isn't the dangerous place to live that people think it is. But if you buy property in what's called the lava zone, you are gambling a little bit with um, getting covered by a river of usually slow-moving magma. I mean, usually, you know, the river is coming for weeks, so you can get out of the way. Some insurance companies won't cover certain areas, or you might have to pay a little bit more for insurance in those areas which are in certain zones. Some people are quick to judge and say, why would you live on the side of an active volcano? But Hawaii is a great place to live, and you might be willing to take that gamble, especially if you can get cheap land. Even if you only get to live on it for 10 years or something, it is sometimes worth it. So in 2018, as many of you know, the volcano decided to up and move. It was erupting in an area called, well, Volcano, and then it just moved its entire cone and everything over to Puna. It's huge. The Magma River just busted out of the side of the mountain and ran down the hill. It's underground tunnels. They're calling the new area Rift 8, but really, at this point, they need to name it New Kilauea or something. It'd be like if you had a volcano in Manhattan and it just suddenly decided in an eight-week period to move to the Bronx. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Wawa is still there, but the eruption destroyed the area around there, so you can now only get there from the Hawaiian beaches side. The 2018 eruption covered vacation land, though, where Dana and her sister were living. So to clarify, Dana was living in vacation land, got hit by the vehicle in a different part of vacation land, and she was found injured in Wawa. We have included maps and pictures on the Autopsy Turvey website if you are having trouble picturing this terrain. So, at this point in the story, the paramedics are finally with Dana, but they could not find a pulse. Only their heart monitor told them that Dana still had one. It took them 15 minutes to stabilize her and start the long journey from Puna to Hilo. The time was 7.13 p.m. She was found by Ida at 4.45. Hazel called it in at 5.47 p.m. So Dana had waited for help at least two and a half hours by now. At 7.56 p.m., Dana arrived at Hilo Hospital. This is the three-hour mark from when Ida had first found her. Hilo Hospital is known for being a remote hospital that does its best, but if you need something major or specialized, you usually have to head over to the main island of Oahu. That is not to say that they lack anything in terms of skill, they just lack resources. Dana went into surgery at around 8.45 p.m., and they worked desperately to save her until just after midnight. Her pelvis was shattered with a piece of it rupturing her bladder. They worked to repair her internal injuries 
and then moved on to suture her head injury. They then took a rape kit. She was just too injured to save and died just after midnight Christmas morning. Her family was in the waiting room. The nurses didn't want the family to see Dana in her condition as the infused fluid had caused her body to swell from 105 pounds to 152 pounds and they could not get her body to stop expelling the fluid on the sheets. It's so sad for a family to lose someone in such a violent way on Christmas and then to go in and see her with all the evidence of what she went through. I don't know how the family got through it. If there is a GoFundMe page for families surviving violence, you should absolutely stop what you're doing right now and go donate to that. It's not like insurance would cover your grieving period. I know there was a lot of confusion around getting Dana the help that she needed in a timely manner. Indeed, the parents later sued and were awarded 452000 for the length of time it took to get Dana to the hospital. But you can't deny that a ton of people really, really wanted to help Dana that day. And that is pretty much the only positive takeaway I have for this case. As Fred Rogers' mom said to him, when things are scary, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And maybe the lawsuit helped improve the response time to emergencies on the Big Island. After reading all this, I don't know about you, but I want to hear about some justice being done. On our next episode, episode two, we will discuss the forensics, the court case, and the convictions. But since this show is called Autopsy Turvy, and not just autopsy, you will learn that there might be new evidence that turns everything we thought we knew about this case on its head. Or maybe not. Until then, visit our website, give us five-star reviews, and follow us on social media. Aloha.